Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Now you know we focus on the fight to halt global warming, the solutions that give humanity a shot at a healthy, sustainable future. And the solutions are there. Clean, renewable power and far less use of fossil fuels. That's the urgent conclusion of the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, how's Canada doing on all of this? Find out in just a couple of minutes. And last week, we brought you the story of a community broken by the storm known as Fiona, but also a community bound together. This week, the delicate task of helping people face up to the changes ahead as they grieve the loss of so much. Also, it's cyclone season in the South Pacific, and in Vanuatu, there's a network of women dedicated to helping protect each other and their families from the threats posed by the storms that are growing in ferocity. All that and a reprise of a documentary report on how warming waters in the Atlantic are affecting both sea life and livelihoods of those on the East Coast. Welcome to What on Earth? We bring you a world of solutions. I'm Laura Lynch. The call to act is coming yet again from the United Nations. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, is once again urging world leaders to get going. In 2018, the UN made it clear to keep the world below 1.5 degrees of warming, we had to act now. Achieving that goal is starting to look less likely. It's a serious warning. However, the report also emphasizes there are solutions, things government can do immediately. And it has a lot to do with the future of fossil fuels, the main contributor to global warming. Sabah Khan is the Director of Climate Solutions and the Director General of Quebec and Atlantic Canada for the David Suzuki Foundation. Sabah Khan, hello. Hello. When we talk about the role of governments and how they handle their fossil fuel reserves at this critical moment in time will have impacts on the future of the planet. I'm wondering what you'd like to see the Canadian government do first. You know, while the news is alarming, the IPCC report actually provides a sort of a survival guide for governments. The solutions are all there. Uh, the main message of this report is really that fossil fuel extraction, unsustainable energy use, unsustainable land uses, lifestyles and patterns of consumption and production are really the root of the problem. What we see here is, though, we can change things. We have a window to change things. The power of now is undeniable. And the solutions are all there for Canada, you know. You know, it involves clean energy. Already, the current government has announced a series of regulatory measures for an oil and gas emissions cap for that sector. Also, methane regulations, a new standard for zero emission vehicles. So all of these, this regulatory work has to come forward. Um, and also, we need the investments to back it up. Is the federal government acting with the urgency that you want it to? Um, we don't see the investments 
at this moment that we need to see in clean energy solutions, such as solar and wind. We're unfortunately, you know, investing too heavily in certain technologies that won't have the impact that we want them to. For example, there's an overemphasis on uh, carbon sequestration or carbon capture and storage technologies, which we know are ineffective. Let me put you in this position, Saba. You say you are the the Minister of Finance um, or the Minister for Climate Change. You're looking at the government supports of the fossil fuel industry and trying to choose what could stay and what should go. Which government supports of the fossil fuel industry would have to be reevaluated for Canada to be in line with the latest IPCC report? Well, Canada simply has to stop public financing in fossil fuels, period. We subsidize the fossil fuel industry heavily. If we didn't subsidize it, then it would not be competitive. We don't give similar supports to the renewable sector. So I think that the message is clear from this IPCC report that there is no room if we want to keep a livable planet. We really need to start this transition rapidly for a global fossil fuel phase out. Can we talk about for a second, though, about, about new fossil fuel projects in Canada? For example, last year, the Bay du Nord project off the shores of Newfoundland was given the go ahead. Can Canada move forward with a project like this and still be in line with what the UN and a consensus of climate scientists are calling for? Absolutely not. There should be no further development, expansion of fossil fuel projects. And Canada has a special role to play. We have a historic responsibility in this crisis because we have been one of the largest producers. We heard Stephen Gilboa, when he approved Bay Dunor, say that he was giving, attaching so many conditions to the project going ahead, including mm-hmm. the fact that it would need to be net zero. Does that give you any comfort? I would have to say no. Quite simply, a lot of governments have just been focusing on carbon capture and storage as being the solution. But this kind of thinking doesn't take into consideration that once that fossil fuel arrives to the consumer, they will burn that fossil fuel. There's emissions being generated there. And so... The the focus on carbon capture and storage, the IPCC report makes it absolutely clear that CCS is not a real solution. The implementation of carbon capture and storage faces technological, economic, institutional, environmental, and sociocultural barriers. So really, the impacts, risks, and even the co-benefits of the deployment of these technologies is very, very variable. The federal government will release this year's budget next week. Um, What opportunities exist there to invest in climate solutions? There's a huge opportunity at this moment. The scale of the transition is going to be huge. That's true. But Canada needs to move forward with the investments needed, as well as a strong regulatory framework. $17.8 billion in clean energy investments is what is recommended by a coalition of groups. So we're encouraged to see that the government has already pledged a significant package of regulations. And now we're hoping to see investments that are going to go towards clean energy and, you know, transforming the electricity sector. Transforming the electricity sector? Are you talking about re- redoing the grid? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've done work that shows that uh, we can clean up the grid. And the grid is very important because if you think about it, cleaning up the grid is not just for the grid's sake. The grid is a backbone. It's really like the enabling piece of all other climate measures that involve electrification of various sectors. And so electrification will really be the most successful as a climate measure if we have a clean grid. Now, this is, of course, a show that focuses on potential climate solutions, and many of our listeners tell us about actions they're taking on their own. 
And, and we've been talking about what role the Canadian government can take, but where do individuals fit in when it comes to holding governments accountable? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that right now there's going to be regulations coming up. So we want to see strong regulations. The oil and gas cap, the, the oil and gas sector is the largest emitting sector. And so the emissions cap that we put, it's got to be a strong cap if we really want to make sure that it's going to be effective. And so Canadian citizens can weigh into those processes. The zero emissions vehicle standard also, Canada is trying to get to no more sale of fuel powered cars by 2035. In order for us to get there, we need really strong targets. You know, Canadians are going to have an opportunity to weigh in on those and they can put pressure on our government. How can they weigh in? Well, they can win through uh, writing to their MPs at critical moments. This report is a summary of several reports that have come out in the past few years. I'm wondering what you think is, is key to keeping people motivated to actually take action. We need to speak in terms of solutions because the solutions exist. Yes, we've made bad choices in the past, but the window is not closed yet. And I think that's what people have to remember. We have so many mitigation options. Of course, solar energy, wind energy, electrification of urban systems, urban green infrastructures, energy efficiency, improved forest management, reducing food waste and loss. Like If you think about it in terms of solutions and in terms of innovation, then it's easier to see hope and, and light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, and and this leads well into my next question. When people hear that the world is likely now to warm beyond 1.5 degrees because of us, because of humans, what bigger picture does the report remind us to keep in mind? You know, of course, the responsibility rests on governments. Governments need to create the parameters for people to produce and consume in a sustainable way. But when you think about individual actions, if you scale individual actions to a planetary scale, then the impact is huge. One energy efficient light bulb will not make a difference, but at scale, then that makes it an immense difference. So I think that just recognizing one's responsibility, but also one's political agency. I mean, this is not a moment where we can just rest. Uh, We need to make sure that we're voting in governments that are prioritizing our health and well-being. And one major message from the report is that we need to prioritize equity. This is about social justice. It's about inclusion and a just transition for everyone. Sabah Khan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Now, we asked the federal government for its response to Sabakan's critiques, including Bay du Nord and fossil fuel financing. A spokesperson for Minister Stephen Guilbeault didn't address the concerns directly. Her written statement affirmed the government's commitments to reaching net zero emissions by 2050. And in response to Khan's assertion that not enough money is going into clean energy... The spokesperson said the government's Smart Renewables and Electrification Pathways program provides close to $1.6 billion for related projects over the course of eight years. Six months ago, the storm known as Fiona ripped through eastern Canada. Wind, rain and waves pounded coastal communities, destroying so much in its wake. Last week on the show, we heard from people in the town of Portobasque, Newfoundland. It bore the brunt of the storm. Many of its seaside homes were pummeled into the ground or dragged into the deep. Homes like the ones belonging to Norman Hinks. Something like you see in a movie for a tsunami. See, there was nowhere for the big wave to go because the cove was full of water. So the big wave had to come ashore somewhere. I hit my neighbor's house and just turned it on the foundation. 
and took my shed just like it was tissue paper. Norm didn't just lose his shed to Fiona. Tragically, he also lost his partner, Thelma Lehman, who was swept out to sea when the wave hit their house. The people of Portobasque are still recovering from Fiona's devastation, and that recovery and rebuilding must be envisioned through the lens of climate change. Emma Power is a consultant with Fundamental Inc., a company dedicated to climate-resilient community planning and design, and she joins me now. Hello. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Um, Fiona destroyed more than 100 homes in Portobasque. How's your company helping the people who lost their homes? So Portobasque, after this incident, put out a call for proposals to help them with the housing strategy. And it's not just um, related to Fiona, because there was a housing crisis prior to Fiona. So when Fiona happened and all of these extra homes were lost, it just exacerbated the problem that they already had. So Fundamental Inc. Uh, was engaged to help with this. And what we included in our proposal was to put a climate change lens on the whole thing. So we know, based on what we were seeing, that we have to consider these types of possibilities going forward in terms of safety and also the mitigation side. We know that more emissions equals more chance of this kind of stuff happening. So we want to encourage low carbon development wherever we can. And in terms of the Fiona victims specifically, who are looking for homes immediately, we really want to make sure that we're taking into account their experience, their trauma, and really trying to work with them sensitively to make sure we understand where they are, what they need, and how we can best support them. Yeah, because these are people's homes. And in many cases, they're where they are because of their livelihoods on the sea. And and the sea plays a big part of the community identity. And I can only imagine some of their reactions. I'm wondering if you've had these conversations, what you're hearing from people when you tell them what needs to happen. We've been hearing quite a a range of, of responses to this. Some who are saying they don't plan to stay in the community. They want to move somewhere more inland altogether. We have people who are saying they still do feel that connection to the ocean and would like to have access to a wharf or somewhere to put their boat. And we've had others say they really don't want to leave the community. They're really hoping to stay, but they don't want to be as close to the coast anymore. And I'm wondering what tools or strategies you have in place to communicate the bad news to residents that, in fact, they they do need to move. One way that we try to handle that is just by being sensitive about that and acknowledging those emotions. We want to give people a chance to ask the questions and make sure that they do understand what we're saying and how it impacts them. It almost sounds like you need to have a bit of training in counseling. That would be quite good, yes. <laughs> um, and maybe maybe we should look into more of that. So I have asked for some advice from family members who work in medicine. And it's similar sort of stuff. Like you want to have a, a comfortable environment um, where someone can, you know, be, be seated and it's quiet and that kind of thing. And you want to be direct in what you're saying. You don't want to beat around the bush or say things in a way that aren't clear. But you want to make sure that you respect how they're feeling, acknowledge it, allow them to question what you're saying and and validate what they're feeling and the questions they have. Well, good on you for taking all that on board. You've been working with other communities in Newfoundland on planning for climate impacts even before Fiona. And I'm wondering how the mm-hmm. conversations around coastal living have shifted since it hit. So prior to Fiona, there was multiple extreme precipitation events in Puerto Basque that caused a lot of flooding. And they've just been hit again and again, it seems, in recent months. So that's been quite a lot. And it's quite relevant to 
a lot of other communities in Newfoundland, for sure. And so um, and ready, we're getting a lot of... They're ready to have that kind of conversation, I guess. Some of them. Um, there still <laughs> might be some um, hesitation, perhaps. But I think in general, the the understanding is a lot more broad now because these events have been happening. So inland flooding has been happening quite a lot in a lot of places. And Fiona hits home not just for Puerto Basque, but for a lot of the coastal communities in Newfoundland. They're wondering, could this happen here? And unfortunately, there's never a good answer to that. We can't predict when and where something might happen. But in general, what kind of our response, I guess, to that question would be, it's not impossible. Now, uh, in your first answer, you were talking about the kinds of things that, that needed to be done. I, I wonder if you can take me down to the ground in either Puerto Basque or one of the other communities that you've been working in. When you look at them, what tell me what kinds of infrastructure and what kinds of buildings need to be moved? Is it simple, simply just a case of moving everything further away from the coastline? It depends. Um, moving stuff can be a little complicated, I think, um, depending on how old buildings are and how they were constructed originally and all of those things. So a lot of the time when we talk about moving inland, it might not be physically moving that much stuff. It could be more of a financial process of like buying people out of their properties, basically, and allowing them to move elsewhere. And that's particularly relevant to people who don't have the resources to move themselves. So they might know that they're vulnerable. They might not want to be living, say, as close to the coast as they are, but they just can't do it financially on their own. So that's what a lot of managed retreat processes will include. So we have to make sure that whatever we're planning takes into account who is there, who are the people in in these communities and what do they need and how can we do this without upsetting too many people. I mean, you're going to, it's going to be a difficult thing to do, but how can we prioritize the people that are most vulnerable? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you use that phrase managed retreat and we have talked about it before on the program, which is what you're saying. It's, it's not a haphazard way of doing things. It's a level or two of government being involved in helping figure out what the best way to do things for people is and, and then managing the movement. What kind mm-hmm. of support is needed from the government as communities make the transition? That's a good question. And I'm not sure if I know exactly what it has to be. Like a lot of small communities haven't really talked about this and that we think that's one of the first steps is to talk about it and seriously consider what it means, what it means to stay and what risks you're taking on and what it means to leave um, and what that and all the complications and money and everything that goes along with that. So there's there's a lot to balance. But I think that a lot of the small municipalities in Newfoundland and the coastal ones that are quite vulnerable, they're going to need support to be able to do this if they're going to do it on this type of scale in a planned way, because their budgets are already very small. They already have very low capacity in terms of staff. Sometimes they're just volunteer run. So I think the federal government will need to do something and the province I know, so as the well? national and the province yeah um so what i'm interested in seeing is if something like that comes out of the national adaptation strategies that the federal government's working on yeah. so we got a first report a few months ago and it was sort of like the 
the plan for the plan. Yeah. Um, is how I interpreted it. <laughs> yep, me too. Um, so I'd like to see I'd like to see what's in the the plan plan. And if it has anything, if this kind of thing comes up, that would be really good to see. Well, does it have anything to say about helping coastal communities affected by climate change? I will admit I haven't read it like cover to cover, okay. but I control F managed receipt <laughs> and and a couple of other and a couple of other phrases. And I didn't find what I was hoping to find is what I remember. So there's, like it, there, there are things there are things things. missing so far then. Yes, potentially. Uh, OK. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and what advice would you give to municipal staff and counselors and planners in these other coastal communities that, that are at risk? Start talking about it. If you haven't, if you haven't done a vulnerability assessment or really thought about like what percentage of your community is at risk, you should. Um, it might be more than you think. Or even just, even if you don't want to think about it in terms of money or you can't, you don't have the resources to do a financial analysis, just think about what it would mean if something happened and what you would do. I'm curious, Emma. So you're from Conception Bay. You grew up near to the water. Does that give you some kind of special knowledge that you understand when you're thinking about these people in the situation they're in? I have my own feelings about it for sure. For example, um, in Conception Bay South, there's a, a trailway that goes all along the coast. And I always love to walk that, ride my bike. And I forget what storm it was, but not that long ago, it washed out a good portion of it. And it affects me a lot, not just because I love that trail, but also because I, just given my background and what I work in all the time, I knew what that meant. And like part of me would love, like loved that they rebuilt that part of the trail. But the other part of me is thinking, well, what's the point? Because I know that it's probably going to happen again. So I, I of course, I, I feel for anyone living in these communities. I, I love where I'm from, but I'm also being away now. I'm, I'm on, the, on the mainland, you know, inland. There's no ocean for a long time in any direction. but. I think about my family home, my friends' home, who do live by the water, and I get a little nervous sometimes. Well, Emma, I think it's great that you're going to be one of the people involved in this because you know what they're living through, you know what it means to them, and I really thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you. If you want to hear about how the community of Porto Basque is coping with the aftermath of Fiona and you haven't listened to the documentary we aired last week, check it out. You can find it at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the South Pacific, there's a Y-shaped archipelago of more than 80 islands, People live on 65 of them, making up the nation of Vanuatu. Now there's the postcard version of the islands, all glorious white sand beaches and lush palm trees. But there's another less picturesque side too. Climate change is posing a serious threat to the people who live there. Every year, residents battle torrential rain, howling winds and formidable floods. In fact, it's the peak of the region's cyclone season now and earlier this month, the islands were struck by two cyclones in the space of a week, leaving thousands homeless. Hello, um, my name is Flora Vano, and I'm the country uh, manager for ActionAid Vanuatu. 
I am a feminist, I'm a humanitarian, I'm a climate change activist, and I'm working with 5,000 women and girls and women and girls with disability across uh, five provinces. Flora Vano has seen what's happened when the storms come ashore. She says they have a disproportionate impact on women, children, and people with disabilities because they can't make quick escapes or rapidly rebuild their lives. And some of them have been forced, displaced because of climate change, sea level rises, flash flooding or flood, uh, remove some of their home, and they have to relocate to other new places. And for them to adapt on those new places, it takes time, and it really affects them physically and psychosocially. Now, Flora's organization is working to protect and empower women through climate adaptation. Inspired by similar efforts in Fiji, she runs a program that provides early warning messages to communities ahead of extreme weather. She says many communities don't always get the forecast they need from the government, and even when they do, the information can be difficult to understand. Vanuatu's Minister of Climate Change Adaptation and Disaster Risk Management says he needs more money from global climate funds to do a proper job of it and to address all of the climate risks his country faces. But in the meantime, Flora is leading a group of women working to keep communities safe. It's called Women Weta Weta, or the Women's Weather Watch. And for the last eight years, it's been working to simplify technical weather forecasts and spread them widely so that the people of Vanuatu stay informed, equipped, and ready to evacuate if needed. When you're going towards cyclone season, that's where those messages are now being disseminated to the correspondent for them to relate to the sisters on the ground. One of those correspondents is Ellen Tamata. Flora sends weather warnings to correspondents like Ellen in one of Vanuatu's three official languages, English, French, and Bislama. Correspondents then work with a network of community leaders to do two very important things. First, depending on the area, correspondents will help translate the messages into one or more of the country's 100-plus other languages. But they also fan out to work on the ground. That means meeting with residents to check out potential emergency shelters and checking the homes of those who want to stay put to ensure they can withstand the cyclone. Before the cyclone, they have to walk inside the community and check the infrequent centers. And our sisters can walk with our disaster committee to access the building. If it's safe, uh, it's accessible to every types of impairment. Uh, and we have to find a transport because the hospital is far. You have to ask their thoughts whether they have a strong house, they want to move. All of the things you have to ask the family and the person with disability. Because people are scattered across so many islands spanning hundreds of kilometers, it's the network of women that helps make this program so successful. But Flora and Ellen say the government needs to do more to consult with communities on emergency and climate adaptation plans so that no one gets left behind. So they've also dedicated themselves to empowering women to take the message to those in office. It's the first step to try to ensure women have a say in decision-making. Once we empower them, there's no stopping them. No one is stopping anyone. They know they have the rights. And you can be certain we will follow up and see how those women are doing.
Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. As I said earlier, the most recent United Nations climate change report is out. And while the solutions are there at our fingertips, the changes to the planet are happening in real time. Quote, widespread and rapid changes, the report says, including to our oceans. There are some places, for example, spots in the North Atlantic, where the water is warming more quickly than average. Here is an encore presentation of a story brought to us by What on Earth producer Molly Siegel from the shores of the Atlantic. Cape Cod juts out from the rest of the state of Massachusetts, kind of like a hook. The open part faces north. If you were to draw a line from the northernmost tip of the Cape to the southernmost point of Nova Scotia, it's about 380 kilometers that's as the crow flies, across the Gulf of Maine. Cape Cod gets that name from colonial settlers impressed by the abundance of cod. But it would not be an apt namesake today. Changes are hard on everybody, and they're hard on communities as well. And so Atlantic Cod presents, you know, sort of the cultural iconic challenges for New England. I meet John Hare in Woods Hole a small community on the south of the Cape. It's sunny out, and he wears his sunglasses for most of our conversation. He's the director of the Northeast Fisheries Science Centre, part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, that monitors fish stocks in the Northeast. Um, So we're walking uh, sort of along Albatross Street. Um, There are a number of scientific Uh, organizations here in Woods Hole. There's NOAA Fisheries, Marine Biological Laboratory, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, the United States Geological Survey have a big lab And the list goes on. So it's a very vibrant place to be a scientist, um, despite it looking like a quiet New England town. A quiet New England town with shingle and clapboard houses. And at this time of year, alive with lush green yards, flowers, and chirping birds. Much of the community is here only part-time. Second homes now start at millions of dollars. When Hare was a kid, living in upstate New York, his family would visit Martha's Vineyard, a short ferry ride away from where we are in Woods Hole, the southernmost point of Cape Cod. We'd load up in the station wagon and drive down, get over to the vineyard, spend two weeks, and then drive back and end up back in upstate New York. So that's where I kind of got my love for the ocean. And the way I like to say it is that, you know, I always wanted to work here, and the sixth time was the charm. So I had applied for five other jobs here and not gotten them, but the sixth one I got. you got to just keep trying. His tenacity paid off. He now leads a team that monitors fish in the North Atlantic from Cape Hatteras in North Carolina up through the Gulf of Maine, which meets the southern tip of Nova Scotia. 
This is a hot spot for ocean warming. This part of the Atlantic, the northwest Atlantic, is changing very rapidly, and there are sort of three factors. Um, one is just the, you know, the ocean is warming. Um, the second is the location of the Gulf Stream, which is the warm current coming up from the tropics, is pushing further north. Um, so that's pushing warm water into areas that were once cold. Um, and then the third one is the, 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 the circulation, the northern circulation is decreasing. So you've got less cold water coming into the region. So we see this just really rapid warming here in the northeast because of this sort of trifecta. That is what NOAA Fisheries data has shown. It began monitoring the area in 1963 for water temperature, ocean salinity, and fish. So we've been collecting uh, scientific surveys for almost 60 years. And so we can look at sort of long-term changes in fish distributions. Uh, Many fish populations are changing their distribution. The dominant pattern is that moving sort of towards the northeast, towards the pole, and then also moving into deeper water. Um, and the, the data supports that the fish are tracking their preferred temperature. Tracking their preferred temperature. Fish have a threshold of temperatures in which they can live, depending on the species and age. What they prefer is usually in the middle of that range. And as their home gets warmer, they look to find those conditions elsewhere to survive. Usually that's north, but in some cases it's not. Hair gives me another way to think about this. Think of it as an inverted mountain range. You've got all these very deep uh, basins, which if you invert it, are like mountaintops. Water that's cooler as it gets deeper. Hiking a mountain, it might be snowing at the top, but not at the bottom. In the Gulf of Maine, some of those inverted mountaintops, or deep, colder pockets of water, mean some fish are moving southwest, where it's warming less quickly. But ultimately, the fish do have one thing in common, trying to find somewhere suitable to live as their habitat starts to change. And people who fish in the North Atlantic are tracking those changes closely. Checking size. Making a living at sea has many challenges, but out there on the water with the open ocean surrounding you? (laughs) Well, I don't think I could do it justice. So I'm Eric Hess. I'm a commercial fisherman from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I fished for 30 years for codfish and haddock, and also bluefin tuna in the summer times. Hess mostly fishes out of Chatham, about an hour and a half drive east of Woods Hole. His family didn't fish, but growing up on the Cape, he was introduced to it. And uh, really fell in love with uh, the excitement of bluefin tuna fishing. Uh, I, I'm a harpooner. Uh, the harpoon fishery is a, an ancient uh, hand-thrown-only fishery uh, that's very selective in, you know, the size of fish we keep. And uh, so, I, I, you know, that, there's a great deal of adrenaline there. It's kind of like hunting. Uh, we do it in the summer months. And the fishery has been compressed to basically a two-month fishery in June and July. So we're right in the middle of it right now. Fortunately, it's a windy day out there, so we're not fishing. To me, Hess looks like he'd be equally at home on a sailboat as a fishing vessel. He looks tanned from spending his days outside. He's in his late 50s now, but he smiles a lot more than most people do near the end of their careers. He started harpooning bluefin tuna in 1984. 
I've been telling people that June is the new July. Here, Hess is not talking about the tourism season, but harvesting tuna. Normally, it doesn't take off until July, but this year, you know, we went out our first trip in June and we saw several, you know, nice schools of fish that normally we we really don't even see till the middle of June, let alone establish any solid catch history until towards the end of the month. So things are definitely starting off sooner. An earlier start for some species. Then there are the quantities. Off the Cape, some fish are showing up in greater numbers than they used to. John Hare with NOAA Fisheries gives me an example. Black sea bass. And when I was a kid, you know, fishing here around Cape Cod, I can remember one summer of my childhood catching one black sea bass and being really excited about it and taking it to the fish market and everyone was excited. Now, you know, after, you know, 40 years, um, you can't not catch a black sea bass around here. I think it's one of the most abundant species in the area and that's sort of because climate change has warmed, they've tracked their preferred temperature and their productivity has increased. As the ocean warms, black sea bass are having more babies. They're abundant in the south, and they're moving north, expanding where they live, not shifting altogether. And that has the fish caught up in bureaucracy. Off of Cape Cod, trawling vessels are catching black sea bass, but it doesn't mean they can land it, bring it to a port and sell it. That's because the quotas, which make up the total amount of a fish species that can be caught, are allocated to different states. So North Carolina can catch so much, Maryland can catch so much, New Jersey can catch so much. And those allocations are largely based on fish distributions in sort of the mid-80s. Fast forward 30 years, black sea bass are now much further north than they were. So you can catch black sea bass in Connecticut, in Rhode Island, in Massachusetts, but the state doesn't have the quota. So you have fishermen who are able to catch a fish Um, but fisheries management is sort of really limiting what they can land. And that creates a lot of tension because there are a lot of black sea bass. The the population has expanded and grown, um, but there are a number of fishermen who don't have access to that population. So to give some black sea bass to Massachusetts, you'd actually have to take it away from states further south that already are legally entitled to fish it. So it's created this tension in the fisheries management system whereby we, I think everyone recognizes that the allocations are not working, but to change the allocations, you have to take something away from somebody and give it to somebody else, which is a very hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do in an industry that's long-faced challenges. I meet Tracy Sylvester on a windy day in Woods Hole. She moved back to Cape Cod early in the pandemic after spending years away. I grew up on Cape Cod, but I've been living and fishing up in Sitka, Alaska for 15 years. I own a fishing boat up there with my partner, and we fish for wild salmon, halibut, black cod out of Sitka and Port Alexander, Alaska. To me, Sylvester looks the part of Cape Cod. She's wearing a colorful, patterned jumpsuit, and you could mistake her for someone on vacation, heading to the beach. But she calls Massachusetts home, at least part of the time. I came back from Alaska thinking I want to sell some Alaskan fish in the winters, keep fishing in the summers. Returning to the Cape, she and her partner opened up a store called The Fisherman's Pantry. 
Their idea was to bring Alaskan fish to Massachusetts. So flash freezing it, vacuum sealing it, stabilizes it and basically stops the clock right at the dock on the fish. So we don't um, worry about spoilage as we're moving it around. And it really helps to reduce waste to freeze it. Um, almost, it's somewhere around 50% of fish that goes to fresh market goes to waste before it gets eaten. So as a fisherman, that's really heartbreaking when you're the one actually taking the fish's life and you're a conservation-minded fisherman who doesn't want to take more than they have to because they want to keep fishing and they want it for their, the future generations to be able to have this wild, amazing, nutrient-dense food resource. Not caught off the dock in Cape Cod, but that can be said of a lot of other fish, too. If you order cod at a restaurant in Massachusetts, what arrives on your plate could be from Iceland. It wasn't always like that, though. Fisherman Eric Hess. Well, one of the biggest changes um, is the decline of our traditional fishery for cod and haddock. It's known as the New England groundfish fishery because there are a number of other species that are caught. But for boats like mine that have used bottom longline gear, uh, cod and haddock are, are the target species and generally comprise, you know, 95% of the catch. But he remembers when cod was still a decent way to make a living. When I started out, uh, an ounce of work was, you know, at least an ounce of return. The cod fishery back in the 90s, even though people then were saying it's, it's under stress, was a, a pretty solid way to make a living here on Cape Cod. As cod stocks declined, he felt the toll. And that was really, that was a struggle, I guess, to, to try to convince yourself that you weren't a horrible fisherman or a bad person. It's just the stocks weren't there and, and you had to transition. Hess says climate change is complicating the story for cod. They're affected by the warming water. There's been an overfishing crisis in New England. And what we see now is that finally we're getting ahead of it with the management. Uh, will the ecosystem allow enough resilience in the health of the fish so that they can rebound. I'm not here to say that I'm the victim of climate change, but I think we've put ourselves in a bad position with poor fisheries management and now stocks that are severely depressed trying to come back in, a, in an arena where basically they've, the goalposts have moved and the whole field is different. You know, the, it's warmer. The, the makeup of forage species is different. It's a question mark whether these stocks can actually uh, return. With fewer cod, spiny dogfish moved in. They're a small shark up to about a meter long with grayish bodies and a white underside. You know, that's one of the challenges for cod as they're allowed to come back. Can they push out the dogfish, which are extremely, you know, efficient and uh, are just are in such great numbers here. So we've, we've actually fished on them. Most of the dogfish are exported to Europe, and we've tried extensively uh, to market them here in New England, and people just, I don't know, they, they want that white, flaky white fish from cod and haddock, and they just haven't, you know, embraced the idea of, you know, using a species that is abundant here and fresh and just doesn't have the same kind of flesh as a, as a flaky white cod. But even if cod are able to make a comeback, Hess has another worry. They don't 
you know, they, they don't recognize international boundaries. So if it's too hot, they can swim over the Hague line and go to Canada, which is a great thing for a Canadian fisherman, of course. Fishermen like Alain Dontremont, the president of Scotia Harvest in Digby, Nova Scotia. It'd be nice to get some black sea bass at the same abundance that we have dogfish. <laughs> then, then we would have some very successful trips. Dontremont is 38 years old now and remembers his first paid gig at age 11. I asked Dad for money one day, and, and he told me to get in the truck. I thought that meant that there was money in the truck, and instead we went to the wharf, and I got paid for the first day at work. So, As the ocean warms, Dontremont does have his eye on other potential opportunities. Trawling for haddock and redfish, other species do show up. Dogfish, like he mentioned earlier, but also... Yeah, the main one would be the black-bellied rosefish. Uh, black-bellied rosefish is, is something that we've caught on and off since the late 80s. Um, but now you pretty much can't make a trip without catching some. It's just right now we're not legally allowed to retain them uh, because they're not listed in the fisheries regs. So dogfish, black-belly rosefish, and anything else there isn't a commercial opportunity for becomes bycatch. It's thrown away. But Dontremont wants the regulations to change to make it legal to bring this type of bycatch in because he wants to learn more about these fish. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans does surveys, but Dontremont says it's just a small snapshot of what's out there. He wants DFO to act more quickly, to invest more in the problem, monitor climate change, and figure out how to adapt the commercial fisheries to match what's out there and what's on its way in. I, I feel like we are struggling to keep up now, and we're not able to bring in the climate change changes, the productivity changes that we've seen. I totally understand the frustration because we kind of have some of the same frustrations too as scientists, that we don't know everything. We haven't answered all the questions. And there's, you know, there needs to be more serious dedication given to like these big ecosystem-based management approaches, and that needs data and that needs resources associated with that. Helen Gurney-Smith is a research scientist with DFO. She's based in St. Andrews, New Brunswick. She's also an author on the most recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. She worries that without enough science, Canada could make the wrong decisions about what and how we fish. I mean, fisheries management is considered one of the key great adaptation options for climate-associated fisheries management. But in a situation where you don't have enough data about a species, then it means that you can be making your assessment based on uh, limited assumptions. And so that's where you can inadvertently, you know, uh, end up with a situation where you haven't taken into account all the different things that are needed to, you know, promote a resilient fishery stock. The focus of her science for DFO is to test how climate change will affect two key commercial fisheries, scallops and lobster. For the lobster work that we do actually in the lab, so we're exposing lobsters to higher temperatures that we think will be happening in the Bay of Fundy within the you know next 70 years. And we're also exposing them to ocean acidification too. So that's a another uh, climate stressor. Um, which is the decrease of pH in the oceans. And what we're looking at is how that affects lobster uh, reproduction and kind of population stability. Her research models conditions in the Bay of Fundy between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. It's still ongoing, 
but for the moment. Uh, with regards to lobsters, you know, we're seeing increased amounts of uh, lobster catches um, in the Atlantic region. But it's only a success story until it's not. We can adapt to a point. But the root problem, the greenhouse gas emissions, need to be addressed to curb global warming. You only have to look to our New England neighbors, south of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, to see how this has played out. John Hare with NOAA Fisheries says they have already seen economic fallout from the changes to lobster. Where lobster fishing off of Cape Cod used to be lucrative, that opportunity has shifted into Maine. But as the lobster declined, people had another idea. Some, some members of the fishery made a transition to Jonah crab. Um, so historically, Jonah crab showed up in the lobster fishery, but they were just discarded. Um, then when sort of lobster population decreased, uh, they started to develop a market for Jonah crab, and now there is a market for Jonah crab. Switching from lobster to Jonah crab. It is possible to market new seafood and to adapt. For Eric Hess, though, adapting has meant something else. He uses his trawling gear to help out research teams like NOAA Fisheries. He gets paid to help with surveys in parts of the Northwest Atlantic that are new to him. That's one of the great things about this this research with uh, NOAA, that it's taken us to places that we normally wouldn't fish, and we've tried different depths and different kinds of bottoms than we normally look for. So we've caught some things that, you know, actually, I'd, I had never seen a golden tile fish before. And we started to catch those. They look like a tropical fish. They're a big silvery fish with a bright yellow stripe and, you know, a black eye patch. It looks like something you'd see in the tropical aquarium. And that got Hess thinking. Could the regulations change if there are more tile fish? So I poked around and looked into the regulations and saw that it was a quota-based fishery held primarily by people from Maryland and, and, you know, Rhode Island and that fished on that continental shelf edge. Nobody was, was fishing for them up there. So it's not something you could go and just make a commercial fishery out of. You'd have to source quota from somewhere and possibly have a commercial permit. So... That's, a, that's one example, for sure, of, of things that I've seen that I might be able to fish for, that currently there's no regulatory framework. Regulations are slow to change. But fish, and the people who fish them, they move more quickly. At her shop, Tracy Sylvester works with other fishermen on Cape Cod. She wants to help them make their catch go further. A creative solution when you're stuck working with the rules you have. Rather than worrying about selling their catch fresh, Sylvester says flash freezing it can extend the life. That cuts down on waste, and it allows fishermen to make more money off of their product. And here on Cape Cod, that can be a little bit of a hard sell because people expect that they're coming here and they're going to eat fresh fish, but they don't understand that most of the fish in the case is not local and it's not really fresh. Um, So we're trying to bring some transparency to that and Another reason why fishermen want to freeze their catch at the dock is it gives them the ability to direct market it. Like you need a whole distribution network to move fresh fish around fast enough so that you can get it to the people before it goes bad. Whereas frozen, you can ship it more efficiently. You can ship it in bulk, you can ship it slow, and you don't have that spoilage during that process. And that gives the power back to the fishermen so they can sell their fish directly because there's no rush really. 
And then there's also frozen products like chowders or fish cakes. Another way to better use up all that fish that doesn't have an immediate buyer. People coming into her shop on vacation may not be super keen to check climate change, but Sylvester tries to keep things positive. They don't kind of don't want to think about climate change when they're here as tourists, but food is one way that we can show them solutions. Look, these are fishermen working together. This is our community and it, it's empowering. For What on Earth, I'm Molly Siegel. Now that documentary was first broadcast in July, and Molly Siegel joins me with a quick update. Hi, Molly. Hey, Laura. Now, it's been many months since you first reported the story, so tell me, what, what is the news? In the story, we just heard Alain Dantremont, a fisherman based in Nova Scotia and the president of Scotia Harvest. And he mentioned a particular fish called blackbelly rosefish. They've caught it on and off since the late 80s. And now they nearly always catch it by accident when fishing for haddock, pollock, and redfish. It's one of the changes he's noticed as the ocean warms. However, they can't keep them. They just have to toss them out. I guess that's by law, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so did Alain Dantremont get what he was hoping for, which was the ability to actually bring those onto shore? Not quite yet, but very, very soon. As of April 1st, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans will change the rules. They're going to allow fishing vessels to keep the blackbelly rosefish they catch by accident, rather than just throwing it away. Does that mean then that this exotically named fish is going to end up on my plate in a restaurant somewhere? Is it a new fishery? No, it, it's not a new fishery, but it does mean that Dantremont and his crew can bring in blackbelly rosefish for processing. So that won't be in mass quantities, but it does allow them to learn more about the fish and maybe to even try and market them. Okay, well, that does sound like some progress. Yeah, it, it is. And these are the types of responsive changes that he wants to see more of as the ocean warms. He just wants to see this stuff happen more quickly. Understandable. Is, is there any update from the U.S. side? Well, there, there is a lot happening there. Their fisheries system operates a little differently than ours with regional councils. And there is a whole list of species that the Mid-Atlantic Fisheries Council is looking at right now, fish that are changing in abundance and distribution as the ocean warms, including black sea bass, which we heard about. But it's all still uh, a work in progress. Thanks for letting us know about it, Molly. Thanks, Laura. You can email us about anything you hear on the show, but here's something we would really like to hear about from you. We are looking for climate heroes. And thank you to everyone who sent a nomination so far. We have seen some great ones, but there is still time to nominate someone. Tell us about your personal climate champion. Is there someone in your life who's gone the extra mile or kilometer to protect the planet? Then nominate your community climate champion. Send us an email, earth at cbc.ca, and tell us about the climate hero in your community. We want to know how they're making a difference and inspiring you. That is all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Daniel Piper and Zoe Yunker, producer Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. This week, Rachel Sanders is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.